This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. I'm really excited today to start a two-part segment about the iconic British band, the Rolling Stones. And you might wonder why I'm talking about the Rolling Stones, particularly on a Christian show. However, I will say this, the Rolling Stones, they've been in operation now for 60 years. That's a long time, 60 years. They've been together since 1962, starting out in London, England, and Mick Jagger, the current lead of the group, has been with them the entire 60 years. Now, of course, I've known about the Rolling Stones for a long time, many, many years, have followed some of their music over all that time. And I remember when they first started out. And so it just shocked me and surprised me that 60 years have actually gone by in that amount of time. And I was also surprised to remember and think that at this stage, they're almost 80 years old. Mick Jagger will be 79 this year. So I said, you know, success leaves some clues and there's something that we can learn from them. So I want us to unpack a little bit about them. And for those of you who wonder how this band that's mostly about sex, drugs, and rock and roll fits into the show, let me say this to you. Even in the Bible, there are people that may not share completely the values and viewpoint, let's say, of a Christian perspective. And yet Jesus used them as examples because there was an element of something that they were doing that was commendable. So, for example, when he was talking about the unjust steward who was going to get fired because he was mismanaging his boss's money, He commended that steward for being shrewd because he went around to all the people who owed money to his boss and he found ways to settle accounts with them quickly and favorably for them so that when he was fired, he would still have some friends out there in the marketplace. And then another example is the magistrate who's supposed to be meeting out justice appropriately and the woman comes to him to get justice and The scripture tells us this magistrate didn't care about people. He didn't care about God, didn't honor God. But because this widow was persistent, he actually did take care of her complaint. So this story with this magistrate who's not caring about anyone is in there because we're really looking at the widow and her persistence. And sometimes we have to be persistent even in front of those who are not for us and who might not even share our values. Now, with respect to the Rolling Stones, there was a lot to also like and admire. And I want to highlight some of what that is. And there's also some things we can learn from that maybe weren't their best moments. And we'll talk about that a little bit too between the two different segments. So let me just mention, yes, they're now on a 60-year tour, which is called 60. And if we look at the career of the Rolling Stones band, they have sold more than 240 million records. They've won three Grammys. They have won a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. 
And they've also, in 2007, they had four of the five top grossing concerts of all time by that year. And they're second only to the Beatles in number one hits in the United Kingdom. They're fourth on Rolling Stone's list of greatest artists of all time. And in 1989, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In 2004, into the UK Music Hall of Fame. And in 2019, Billboard had them as the second greatest artist of all time. They've had 13 number one singles. And on top of all of this, in 2003, they were knighted. Mick Jagger was knighted for his services to popular music. And in addition to all the commercial work that they've done over the years, they're also a band that's done many benefit concerts and appearances, done many charity engagements to also give back to others and help other people. If I think about this personally, what is it that I have enjoyed about the Rolling Stones over the years? It's because their bass was a blues bass, and I always loved the blues. And if you listen just to the instrumental part of their music, when they were particularly in their blues sort of genre, you hear the heavy blues influence in their instrumentation. And it makes the music interesting. I'm not a big rock person, but I like the rock that has the blues influence in it. I can remember when the Ed Sullivan show was on television and anybody who was anybody would certainly be performing on the Ed Sullivan show. The Beatles were on during this time in the 60s. And so the Rolling Stones came along and they also were on the Ed Sullivan show. But because they were way out of the box, they had to tone down some of their lyrics in order to sing in the family friendly way on the Ed Sullivan show. And Ed Sullivan he invited them to be on the show and it was about a year before they actually could be on the show because they were getting into some trouble for drug usage and other places. And so that had to be tamped down for a while also. So what I want to really talk about in this first segment, especially is what's the backstory of the band? How did they really start? What was the beginning? And so Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, who was a gifted guitarist, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, they were childhood friends and classmates going all the way back to 1950. And so they were good friends until Mick Jagger moved away. His family moved about five miles away from where they were living in England. And that was in 1954. So in the absent time, during that distance, Mick Jagger formed a garage band with a rich tailor, and they were playing music based on the influences that Mick Jagger really loved, which was Black artists in the United States in the blues genre, people like Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, R&B and blues, Howlin' Wolf, Bo Diddley, all of these were the early influences on Mick Jagger. Then right around about 1961 or so, Mick Jagger is taking the local train in England and he runs into his old buddy, Keith Richards. They're standing on the local train platform together and Jagger has an armful of these records 
from the blues artists in the United States. And so Richards recognized that they both still had a passion and love for the same music. So they reconnected. So we have Richards now, we have Taylor, and we have Jagger, and they create a group that was called the Blues Boys. And also joining their group were two other guys, Alan Etherington and Bob Beckwith, and that made up the Blues Boys. So that's 1961. Then in 1962, they hear about another group that's at the Ealing Jazz Club. And that group was called Alex's Corner R&B Band, also known as Blues Incorporated. So they sent that group a demo tape about their own work. And they later on the 7th of April got to meet the band Blues Incorporated, and they met them at the Ealing Jazz Club. At that time, Brian Jones was a side guitarist with the Blues Company. That group also had Charlie Watts, Ian Stewart, and Richards and Jagger then decided to join forces with those guys. And that's how they started then a collaboration. And at that point, uh, Brian Jones was really more the lead of the band. Well, not so much the lead then because he was really a side guitarist, but he decided to leave that group and start his own group. And when he chose to start his own group, he put an ad in Jazz Weekly and he was looking for bandmates. That's when Mick Jagger and that's when Keith Richards decided to join him. And also Ian Stewart came to be a part of that group as well. So now we've got these guys now forming together what would ultimately later become known as the Rolling Stones. And here's how it happened. Brian Jones, who was the lead of the group, he actually got on Jazz News phone call and he was asked, well, what's the name of your band? They didn't really have a name. And an album cover was there by Muddy Waters that had a track called Rolling Stone. So he told them, our name is the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones without the G on the rolling part at that point. So that's how the group got its first name. It was later on the 12th of July in 62 that they did a show under that title of Rolling Stones, and that was the Marquee Club in London. And then later on, their classic lineup then included Charlie Watts and as their permanent drummer. That happened around about the 12th of January in 63. By the time we get to 1964, they're doing their first UK tour. And on a couple different surveys, they actually beat out the Beatles as being the number one UK band. And it was right around that time that they changed their name from the Rolling Stones to the Rolling Stones with a G on the end. And that's how they would end up being known. The band had to figure out what was going to be their direction. What were they really going to be about? And they doubled down on the Chicago blues sound. That was kind of their main influence in the genre that they really wanted to move into. And so that's what they focused on. In about 1964, they also got a new manager. And this manager was 19-year-old Andrew Luke Oldham. Even though he was only 19, he had previously managed the Beatles. And it was the Beatles who actually suggested that 
the Rolling Stones consider Andrew as their manager. Now, of course, he had learned, Andrew had learned some things from managing the Beatles. And so he's ready to take on this role because the Beatles didn't have the best recording contract. And so Andrew learned from that and he was able to negotiate a better deal for the Rolling Stones. But let me mention that because he was 19, he was technically underage and he wasn't able to sign contracts or do anything on his own. And prior to that, his mother had to co-sign everything in order for him to do any work. They hired someone else to also work with him so that all the contracts could be signed and all of that could be done. So the first label that the Rolling Stones were under was Decca Records, and they had extremely favorable terms. For that time, if we consider modern times, they got some really favorable terms. For example, for a new act, they got three times the royalty that would normally be offered. They also had full artistic control of their work, and they owned their own master tapes, and they could record in non-DECA studios, which was a real bonus because they actually preferred to record in the Regent studios because it was more cost-effective and they liked the acoustics better in the Regent studios. So they weren't limited uh, to the DECA studios in that case. In 1963, they did their first big UK tour and they were performing with Bo Diddley, Little Richard, I should say not with, but on the same ticket as Bo Diddley, Little Richard, and the Everly Brothers. So this gets them some additional exposure along the way. Also, around about this time, one of their singles that ended up hitting it kind of big was a remake. Actually, it was a song by um, the Beatles. It was written by John Lennon and McCarthy. It was called I Want to Be Your Man. It was number 12 on the UK charts. And back in those days, one of the things the Beatles did, which was kind of interesting, is for their friends, they would actually gift them the copyrights to songs so that they, that group could record the song. And that's what they did for the Rolling Stones on that particular uh, song. So right about this time, their young manager, Andrew Oldham, he recognized that they were leaving a lot of money on the table because they were playing a lot of covers and music that other people wrote. And that's really how this band started. They did a lot of music that was already out there that other people had made popular and they were just doing their own cover version. And so Oldham said to Jagger and to Richards that it might be really important for them to learn how to do writing of songs. Because if they were the writers themselves, they wouldn't be losing all of this money to the copyrights of other people. Now, none of them were really songwriters. And so this was really a novel thought. And Jagger and Richards didn't even think they could do that necessarily. But So they just played around with it and experimented and did their sort of sophomoric attempts at songs. And they actually ended up doing pretty well. And this kind of shifted the dynamics a little bit, because at this point, Brian Jones had been more the lead in the band. And we're moving now towards a season where actually it's going to be more Mick Jagger is the lead and also Richards, because they were the songwriters. And also right about this time is when Brian Jones gets addicted to drugs. And that's a really difficult season for the band, a very difficult era and time period. 
And ultimately, he would leave the band because of his drug addiction and his inability to keep up with their assignments on the road. And about a month later, he tragically dies in his swimming pool at his home. And so that's what ultimately happens with Brian Jones along the way. And so this leaves Mick Jagger and Richards in kind of the lead role in the lead position. In 64 is when they did their first U.S. tour. And some would describe it as a disaster of sorts because they're just learning and it's just the beginning. And one of the places where they were was the Hollywood Palace with Dean Martin. And Dean Martin was said to have mocked them because of their hair and the way they were performing. And you have to understand that Oldham, who was their manager, he realized he had to make a distinction between the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. So the Beatles, they had these suits on, even though they had the long hair, it was more of a clean cut look. So he kind of made the Rolling Stones more like the bad boys. They were kind of like the, the grunge band and they were really over the top. And so that was going to be their differentiator and their difference and their moniker along the way. And so here they are looking really different coming to the United States. Dean Martin wasn't all that thrilled with them. However, while they were there, they did do two days of recording at Chess Studio in Chicago. And on that trip, they met Muddy Waters and other people who they had admired and who were their earlier influences. And one of the things that strikes me about, I saw a video clip of them playing with Muddy Waters at a club. And what was fascinating is they clearly loved the blues music and you could see how they were energized by it. They could also play it, especially the instruments. Richards was just phenomenal at playing the blues with Muddy Waters people and so on. Mick Jagger would take turns kind of singing with Muddy Waters back and forth. And yet it was clear to me that although this was an influence and this was the bass, that that box was really going to be too small for the Rolling Stones. They were going to break out of that box and do something a little bit different and a little bit unique. And so we'll talk a little bit more about how they transitioned from doing the covers and how they transitioned from imitating, if you will, the work of others to finding their own sound and their own place on the map. So you might be wondering, as we're having all this conversation about the Rolling Stones, what does this have to do with business? What's the business application? Well, there is a business application. There are a few principles I extracted out of this part one piece that are important to pay attention to, because remember I said success leaves clues. So here are a few things. Number one, they followed their own gifts and passions. They were interested in the blues. And even though no one else necessarily in England was playing the music of these older Black guys out of Chicago in the blues genre, that's what they loved. In fact, they said, this is the music. It feels more real to us than anything that we have heard before. So they stuck with that. They followed their own passions and their own gifts. So as a business person, you also want to follow the passions you have, the gifts that you have. What is it that's attracting you? For example, you might be really, really good at sales and perhaps finances. That's not your thing. And so you wouldn't want to become a CFO if in fact, maybe you're more on the marketing and sales side 
go with the gifting. And so that's number one. Number two, they did study the successful icons in their industry. They studied deeply Buddy Waters and they studied deeply all of these blues artists. And they knew how to do that music because they were so interested and they were learning. So in this early years, first phase, they're in a learning mode. And so as you are in the business corporate world, those early years are a learning mode. And even as you become a corporate executive, you're learning something about even the executive ranks early on, because you're going to have to pass the baton on to other people. So they studied those who were successful. They were in a learning mode. They also established valuable partnerships. And these partnerships with people were with people who had similar passions and interests shared interests. However, they had different talents, they had different gifts, and they were complementary so that they could collaborate together. It's not a mistake that their manager, the 19-year-old manager that they brought in, had worked with the Beatles. He knew something about groups that were big and iconic like that on the screen at that time. And even their collaborations with these partners to ultimately form the Rolling Stones band. So that was important, those partnerships that they established. So they were willing to grow. They were willing to expand and really change the seats, if you will, on the bus as they went along. And that leads to number four, which is that they leveraged the opportunities that they did have. For example, when they were doing their tour and were able to be the front end act of some great people who they loved from the United States, that was an opportunity to leverage. And so they did that. And then number five, they created, and we'll see this more in segment two, but they created their own style. So it was an evolution of their artistry and evolution of their craft to get to the point of a distinction if you will. So when you think about yourself in the business world, you want to ask, what are the valuable partnerships that I need to establish with people who are bringing different gifts and talents that are complementary to my own? How can we collaborate together? What are the opportunities that we can collectively leverage? And how do we create our own special secret sauce, our own distinction in the marketplace is also an important question to ask along the way. So next time when we continue with part two of the Rolling Stones, the 60 tour, 60 years, unpacking what's made them successful for a 60-year time period, I'll add a few more business application points. For now, let me close with this particular Bible verse. It's from Proverbs, the 24th chapter and verse 27, and it says, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward, build your house. This is important. There's preparation, and you're making it fit for you, not just taking the coat of armor that belongs to Saul and being David and wearing that. You're making it fit for you, and when it fits for you, then you can build your own house. And that's what we're going to unpack next time is how the Rolling Stones built their own house.
You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.